And here's a great example of an artist who's essentially held up a mirror to his community and said, all the stuff that you think you are, yes, you are that, but you are something more. Wow. Talk about a self-confidence campaign. Talk about changing perceptions for people. This is a fantastic example of what a creative person, a person who is in love with their community, unbidden, unpaid, can potentially do to make their community a better, more interesting, more lovable place. Wow. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode for the love of cities with Peter Kagiyama, named for his book with the same title. Appropriately given the topic, this program was presented in partnership with our local government, Leon County and the city of Tallahassee, and also KCCI Tallahassee. Funding for this podcast series was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. All right, so what does loving the city you live in have to do with healing the partisan divide? Turns out the answer is almost everything, and Peter's going to break it down for us today. But first, let me just say, for us here at the Village Square, this makes total sense. If our deepest identity is centered around the red versus blue, us versus them, feuding national tribe, then we're spending our psychic energy on something that's not highly relevant to us and that we can't do much about. But instead, if we focus our energy on our local hometown and if we love our city, then our identity is related to the future of the place that we share together, where we are empowered, connected, and acting in a real way that can impact our future and our kids' future. We belong here in the world and we are seen. That's a huge difference between those two mindsets. And since our model here at the Village Square is based on ground-up neighbor-to-neighbor connections, we see every day the magic that happens when people spend more time caring about their hometowns. So we think Peter is quite brilliant, and we're excited for you to hear this fun, energizing talk. Speaking of fun, you guys, listen, about roughly about... 45 minutes in, Peter shares the infamous Grand Rapids Lip Dove video. When he gets to that point, we beg you guys, please pause it and watch it. You will be thanking us later and probably smiling for a week. The link is on our website episode page. All right, let's get on with it. The Village Square is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And now it's time for me to turn it over to Leon County Administrator Vince Long, who will share a little bit more about loving our cities before we bring up Peter Kagiyama in just a minute. All right, here's Vince. Thank you all for being here. You're in for a big treat today. Many of you uh, have probably heard about the Knight Foundation Soul of the Community Survey, which was done in concert with Gallup uh, a couple of years ago. And it was a three-year project which found that communities with citizens with higher, what they referred to as community attachment, also had higher growth in local GDP. And uh, when I first read Peter's book, I just thought he was really onto something. And he talked about how communities like this really tapped into the great potential of their citizens uh, to contribute to the community in really meaningful ways and, and really amazing ways that you'll, that you'll hear about uh, here today. Let me just um, introduce to you, Pete, uh, Peter, and I, and I won't do his, his uh, resume uh, justice, but I referenced his book, which has been uh, called one of the top 10 urban and planning books 
of the year for the love of cities. Uh, it's a great book. I think Peter will have a few copies um, for you if he didn't sell them all earlier today. Uh, but Peter really is a, a very highly sought after facilitator and speaker and author, obviously. Uh, really, and he's highly sought after all over the world uh, for his for his insights. And, and and I think you will you'll learn why. Uh, in just a few moments here. But again, let me just thank you all for being here. And it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Peter Kagiyama. Peter? Great. Thank you, Vince. Oh, I'm hooked up. Wired for sound. Um, this is a cool facility. I get to present in a lot of interesting rooms, but this is the first planetarium I've been in in a while. Um, I kind of feel like I should chill out down here. We could put on the laser Floyd and kind of like zone out. <laughs> Maybe later. Okay. But thank you for coming out. Why would someone come to something you know, like this, lovable cities? Why would we do that? We ask that question. Uh, I ask that question a lot. You know, I ask people, do they love their city? And I suspect that the people here, because you're, you've come out for this event, you, of course, you love your city. Um, and you'd like to think that that notion is actually fairly common. And maybe in the circle of friends that you run in, because uh, community-minded people, you know, passionate people like that, they tend to you know, inspire that in other folks. And you probably think, well, you know, we all get this. The sad truth is, is that that is not as common of a notion as we would like to believe. And in fact, Vince uh, mentioned that uh, the Gallup Soul of the Community survey. And he's right. And it was actually quite detailed. They asked 40,000 people, 26 cities over a three-year period. And they're basically taking the temperature of our relationship with our place. And what they found was actually kind of sad. Uh, found that 40% of people would identify as unattached to their place. 36% are neutral and just 24%, less than one in four of us, one in four, would define themselves as attached to their place. Um, now, attachment is not love. Attachment is sort of the bare beginnings of what we would probably all consider good citizenship. Attachment means you voted, uh, you volunteer once a year at the homeless shelter, and you're part of the community watch. Congratulations, you're attached. How warm and fuzzy does that feel? Not very, not very. Um, and as Vince also noted, Gallup also was correlating this to economic data. And what they found was very, very striking. That the places that had the highest levels of passion and loyalty also had the correspondingly highest levels of local GDP and economic vitality. Interesting. Now, the fact that love matters, I don't think I have to make that case too hard to any of you. I mean, we all feel this. We all know this. When children are loved, they thrive. The same with pets, plants, and objects. And I do mean objects. Um, most of us have a relationship with an automobile, right? It's an object. I grew up in Ohio, and I came down here to Florida about 20 years ago. And I remember winters in Ohio, and most people's cars in Ohio, Midland, Michigan, wherever, um, this time of year probably look a lot like this car, right? Um, in dire need of a bath, probably needs some scheduled maintenance, probably needs a little bit of love, right? But it's sort of symbolic of the nature of the relationship that we have with the car in that it is a very functional relationship. That car gets you from point A to point B, and we treat it like a tool. And that's perfectly fine. But we all know people who love cars, right? Somebody who maybe is out there on the weekends with a baby diaper, you know, waxing that car as like a chamois. And they change the oil in the car, even if the car hasn't been driven, because it's time to change the oil, right? Um, maybe some of you are those people, you know, the ones who really love cars. Now, this car looks and feels very different than the car probably most of us drive. Why? Well, it's because the person who owns this car has invested some of their time, some of their emotional content, some of their love into that object, and it clearly shows. Now, don't you think if more of us invested our time, our emotional content, and our love into our neighborhoods, into our cities, into our communities, that they would shine a bit more like this car? I do believe they would. Now, this question, what do you love and what do you hate about your communities, is one I've been asking all over the world for several years now. And of course, I've got this wild diversity of answers, as one would expect, but I've also got an almost comic uniformity of some answers and these are cutting across borders, national borders, state borders, and things like that. And people are remarkably consistent about what they say they dislike, what they say they hate about their cities. And it's become almost comic. And you can probably relate to this. What do people hate? Well, they hate big things. Big things like traffic, parking, uh, a bad education system, bad planning, ugly, ugly design. Big intractable problems that I'm not sure we ever truly fix. At best, we maybe address them as symptoms, right? And there's nothing that symbolizes this more than the pothole. We have potholes here, right? Yeah, of course. 
None. Uh, well, well done, Vince. Well done, City of Tallahassee. No potholes. Moving on. No. Um, but here's the thing about potholes: is you know, citizens they, they they'll complain. It's like, hey, there's a pothole. Somebody fix that. So you know, they complain to local government. Local government eventually fixes the pothole, and it becomes a sort of ongoing song and dance, right? And we sort of reduce our relationship and our points of contact with uh, with local government to fixing potholes. Well, I can tell you this. You can fix every pothole here in Leon County, and the collective citizenry, you guys would all stand up and say, eh, thanks, streets don't suck quite so bad. <laughs> there is no love for fixing potholes. There's very little emotional return on investment for fixing those potholes, which is not to say we stop fixing the, pot the potholes. Vince, you're not allowed to stop fixing potholes. I'm sorry. But I think we can agree that it has to be something more than just that that makes us you know, connected to our cities. Because let's face it. If it was just about police and fire service and paved roads, why would you stay in one place versus another? There's no difference then, right? But clearly there is a difference, and, and those are the things that actually matter. Now, in order to be a functioning city, you have to meet certain minimum threshold requirements. You have to be both functional and safe, okay? That's the minimum threshold for a working city, for a working community, working neighborhood. Okay, I get that. Now, the challenge right now is in tough economic times, there's uh, sort of the tendency to say, well, money's tight, so let's say uh, it's functional, it's safe, paint it battleship grade, kick it out the door, and boom, that's good enough right now. Turns out that's probably not true. Even though there are fiscal hawks looking over the shoulder of every you know, decision local government makes and looking at every dime, uh, and uh, the challenge, though, is I don't think even those folks would be satisfied with a battleship grade, functional and safe solution to their community. Well, what do we actually want? Well, it turns out the other things that we'd like in our city, and our community, comfort. Why can't our city be comfortable? Why can't it be convivial in the sense that it actually helps facilitate us coming together and interacting with each other? Why can't it be interesting, and maybe more appropriately, why can't it be fun? Why can't it be fun? Where's the fun is a totally legitimate question uh, to be asked in all sorts of, uh, sorts of uh, uh, situations. We've all been in those horrible meetings, right, you know, where you're down in the weeds of whatever business and whatever it is uh, you're in, and it's like, oh, you know, we're, we've got to get this done, we've got to get this done. And everyone gets sort of pulled down into the, into the weeds, into those details. Next time you're in that meeting, seriously, I want one of you to raise your hand and say, okay, I get what we're talking about, but please, uh, somebody tell me, where's the fun? Seriously, because when you ask that question, you at least start you know, considering the other things beyond the mere technical, and you have the possibility of having a solution that not only meets technical needs, but actually maybe uh, creates something beyond uh, the mere technical. Because, you know, let's face it, um, where's the fun to totally changes the dynamic of that conversation, and at least it creates the possibility that we might do something uh, beyond the mere technical solution. So next time you're in that meeting, ask that question. Guaranteed, you will change the dynamic of that meeting for the better. Now, the things that we love about our cities actually tend to be small things. They tend to be intimate things. And in my book, I liken them to the idea of a handwritten note that goes with the gift, right? And guys, we all did this. At some point in our lives, we made the mistake of giving a gift to our significant other, our, our wife, our, our, you know, our girlfriend, and we forgot to put the note in with the gift, right? And you, you, you get that. You know, when, when they get the gift, they look at you and like, oh, honey. And you know you've missed something. It doesn't quite register at first. Oh, darn, the card. Why the card? Well, because the card says we've taken a moment. We've personalized it. We've made this intimate connection uh, beyond the mere gift. That small thing has an outsized impact on the way people feel about the gift uh, and, and, and the giver. Now, the same thing, I think, applies to cities. Small things, these love notes. Small things, outsized impact. And... Um, the nice thing is, is these are things that cities can give to citizens, and sometimes, sometimes, citizens will give back to their cities. And I've got a few examples of these love notes, if you will. Any of you guys been back to New York City in the last two years or so? A few hands going up. Okay. Um, if you went to Times Square in New York City in the last couple of years, you've seen a radically different Times Square since they've made it a pedestrian-only zone. Because in the past, when you went to Times Square, the one thing you really wanted to do was look around, because it's sensory overload, right? Signs and people and just this, all this stuff going on there. And in the past, if you, if you, had the, you, know, if you were there and you stopped on the sidewalk, you're going to get run over by a New Yorker. Take one step off the curb, run over by a cab. Take your pick. Now, because they, you know, they've pushed the cars to the periphery, uh, they made it a pedestrian-only zone, they brought in seating, they brought in Wi-Fi, 
it's a fantastic place to do the one thing you wanted to do, which was just look around. Amazing difference. Um, and you can see how it's become an, a performance venue, a place to, to sit and people watch. It's fantastic. And the guy who runs the, the Times Square Business Alliance uh, told me an interesting thing. He said, in the past two years, locals have started to come back to Times Square. Interesting. Now, in the past, a local New Yorker would not have been caught dead in Times Square because that's where all you tourists were, right? Looking around, taking pictures, things like that. Um, now, because it's interesting and, you know, um, there's places to sit and it's comfortable, it's like a third space, locals have started to come back to New York. Amazing. By the way, when they proposed this, there was a lot of people who, you know, were hue and cry about this. They said, you're going to bring traffic in Manhattan to a standstill. Are you crazy? Well, it turns out they weren't. That it's actually, traffic moves around, it facilitates it just fine. And now New York City has this fantastic giant living room, if you will, where people can go and experience the city. Go there, you will totally, it will definitely change the way you feel about New York City. Any of you folks here been to Millennium Park in Chicago? A few, okay. Um, I bet you had this experience. This is called Cloudgate, by the way. Um, but it's known locally as The Bean. All good public art needs a nickname. If you have some public art in your community that doesn't have a nickname, I would submit that probably hasn't captured people's imaginations. And this is, you know, this can even be true if it's a derogatory nickname. That's okay. There's a piece of public art in Tampa. Um, I don't even know what the official name of it is, but it's called the Exploding Chicken by those. So you can imagine what this statue actually looks like, right? Um, but at least it captured people's imagination. So, Cloudgate, the bean. When you approach the bean, I bet you did this. You found your reflection in the bean, right? You took your picture. You took your friend's picture. You took the sort of skyline picture, right? And while you're doing that, kids underneath of it, rolling around on the ground, playing with it, touching it, touching the art. How radical is that? Art you can touch. Wow. Cool. And they're playing with it like this giant funhouse mirror, because that's kind of really what it is. And then right next to it, you have these towers. Uh, two towers. And these are actually video screens, okay? The eyes open, it smiles at you, right? Um, and then during the summer months, they have these water cannons that shoot water out onto the deck, and it's like this giant above-ground pool. And you will see hundreds of kids out there on a typical hot summer day um, having fun, laughing. Good public policy point, when kids are happy, parents are happy. Good. You do very well to, to remember that as we put together, as we try to make better communities. Kids happy, parents happy. By the way, if you don't have $475 million uh, lying around waiting to build your version of Millennium Park, that shouldn't be an impediment to creating something in the interim. Um, we were in Braddock, Pennsylvania uh, this summer, and I happened to take this picture. That is a garden hose, and it's, it's spraying out there onto a deck, and the kids are there in the water. Now, the kids don't care that that's a garden hose. All the kids know is that it's hot and the water is wet. We have this tendency to maybe overthink our problems and saying, oh, we need a solution that costs this much money. Well, we don't have that much money. Well, then there's nothing we can do. What's wrong with a garden hose? You know, in the interim, you know, maybe this isn't the permanent solution, but it at least addresses the issue, and at least it says, okay, well, let's do something uh, in the meantime. Sometimes we overthink the problem. Now, fun, and I have this recurring theme of fun, is kind of important. And if you folks been to Indianapolis and the Children's Museum there, this is what this is from. Now, there's these fantastic, life-size, big dinosaurs, both trying to escape out of and to break back into the Children's Museum. I think this is really cool. Now, one would say, okay, I kind of get that. I would expect that at a Children's Museum. Okay, that's fine. Um, but how about this? The Denver Convention Center. This is called I See What You Mean, but of course, locally, it's known as the Big Blue Bear, right? Now, what's kind of cool about this is that once you've seen the Big Blue Bear, you can never unsee the Big Blue Bear. This is really wonderful stuff. Now, think about this. If you were sort of an artist or somebody who's proposing a project in, in, in the city or in the county, and you came up to them in front of council and said, I have this idea. I want to do this giant sort of helium balloon kind of thing. It's going to be all silver. Or better yet, I've got this idea for a statue. It, it's going to be a bear, really big, and, oh, I'm thinking blue. How do you think that conversation might go over these days? They'd look at you like you had two heads. Are you crazy, sir? No. What's up with that? Because if you reduce the argument about why you should do this to typical finances, you will never do the Big Blue Bear. You will never do Cloudgate. Because it can't just be about the bottom line. It's got to be about something else. Because, again, once you see this, you never forget it. Once you've experienced Millennium Park, you will never forget it. So there's has, there's a, there is a valuation that we have to attribute to these things beyond the purely financial. And that has to do with the emotional side and the emotional engagement that these things create in us.
Now, think about play. Play is incredibly important in our interpersonal relationships. Those, those unstructured, unplanned moments when we're just at ease with our friends, our family, play. They are at the heart of our relationships, right? We need more opportunities to play with our cities. And certainly public art is a great example of how you could do that. But sometimes it can be really, really simple. Um, this was taken in Anchorage, Alaska. My partner Michelle and I were there uh, last February. And they took us around to this downtown park. And uh, this was sort of a remnant from the, um, the, the holiday ice sculptures. Still February, obviously still quite cold. So we're looking around, and this train, it's like oh, these kids are playing. And Michelle had the temerity to sit down on this, and this little girl walked up to her and goes, you're in my spot. <laughs> so we moved, and we found this. Now, public policy point number two. You want people making that face in your city. When people make that face in your city, good things happen in your city. Not only do we remember the, the people in the place and we tell friends, we spend money. Think about that. We want people making that face in our city. Well, they don't make that face in our city when you fill potholes for them. No, they make that face when you surprise and delight them. And surprise and delight doesn't have to cost a whole lot of money. But surprise and delight requires us to think about the problem and think about the experience in a different way. You know what that is? That's frozen water. That's pretty darn cheap. Now, granted, the frozen water here in Florida is a little harder to come by than it is in Anchorage, Alaska. Nonetheless, that's frozen water, some creativity and some imagination, and a different way of looking at the problem. What could we do if we looked at the problem a little bit differently uh, and tried to think about surprise and delight in, in conjunction with our technical solution? Good stuff. Now, I love museums. We all, well, of course we love museums. This is the Tampa Museum of Art near where uh, I live. Uh, Michelle and I live in, in downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So the Tampa Museum opened up a couple of years ago. Really cool stuff, great you know, design, cool collection, and a couple of small but significant things that they did there. One is the dog park that's out in back of it, right there on the Hillsborough River, and the other is the playground that's out in front of it. Now, as high-minded as we would all like to think of ourselves, like, oh, of course, I always go to the art museum, right? How often do we actually go and have the traditional museum experience where we pay our money, we go through the galleries and you know, see everything, that traditional museum experience, right? Once, twice a year, maybe when you know, a, really new, a great new exhibit comes into town, or more likely when some of our friends from out of town come in, you know, it's like if we want to impress them, it's like, oh, let's go to the art museum. You know, the heck with a sports bar, let's go to the art museum. Um, and that's fine, uh, but think about this. On a daily basis, hundreds, if not thousands of people are interacting with this museum without ever actually going into the museum because of the dog park and because of the playground. These two small elements anchored by that museum, but these two small elements exponentially increase the value of that museum. And I'm sure at some point, because it was a torturous path to get this museum funded, I'm sure people said, well, dog park, that's extra expense, and hey, um, you know, playground, lawsuit waiting to happen. To their credit, they said, no, these are important. We're going to make this happen. Small elements, outsized impact. And every city in North America has a farmer's market, right? You probably have several uh, here uh, in Tallahassee. People tend to think of these farmer's markets, oh, they're, they're nice to have. They're actually far more important than that. If you actually dig into what people really connect with and what they really love about their, their local community, these farmer's markets really do matter. Uh, this is the downtown uh, Saturday morning market uh, in St. Petersburg. And I like to say it's where St. Petersburg goes to meet itself. Because I will go there, and I'm guaranteed I'm going to see people I know. I'm going to see people with their dogs and their kids. I'm going to taste new things. I'm going to buy new stuff. Uh, interesting place. The former mayor, Rick Baker, used to go down there and play his guitar on a pretty regular basis, which I always thought was an incredibly astute political move. Because you get to see the mayor out of the suit and tie doing something kind of cool, right? the place where your city goes to meet itself. We tend to think of these things as nice and sweet, and they are, but you dig into it, they are actually far more important than we probably give them credit for. So we need to value these things, I think, a little bit more. Now, a lot of the things I'm talking about here, these sort of, sort of third spaces, fun, interactivity, conviviality, comfort, all this stuff, all this in many ways is actually coming together for you in Cascades Park. Um, I was first brought here a little over a year ago uh, Vince and the county brought me here, and they were touring around. This photo is probably from almost a year ago, so, and I know this is far uh, closer to being finished now. But Cascades Park, I think, has the opportunity to be a significant love note, maybe your version of Millennium Park here for Tallahassee. And I can't wait to see what all is done uh, once it's there. But that's sort of just the beginning, because once it's there, it's like, okay, what are we going to do with all these cool toys? 
you know, and where's the, you know, the next great creative idea? And what could we do with this, or, you know, this space and things like that? So this is going to be a fantastic love note for your community. Can't wait to see it finished. Rituals and traditions. I bet your family has rituals and traditions, several of them. I bet your organization has rituals and traditions. Well, cities have rituals and traditions as well. This is Providence, Rhode Island. Any folks here been to Providence? A few. This is called Water Fire. And uh, this was started about 15 years ago by an artist by the name of Barnaby Evans who was commissioned to create this, uh, uh, this piece. And what was, he did was really quite simple. There's this river that snakes through downtown Providence. And what he did is he anchored these braziers in the middle of the river, bring in cords of pine wood, and he lit them on fire. Water and fire. Aside from frozen water, it's probably the most basic thing in the world, and it's absolutely magical. Because you go down there during a water fire event, and you smell that pine smoke, you hear the crackle of that wood, you see these great dancing shadows that are created because it's like a bonfire, right? And I bet every one of us at some point in our life has sat in front of a bonfire or a campfire and been absolutely mesmerized. There is something about fire that we as human beings respond to, and we can just watch fire and be very, very content by doing that. So imagine taking that to the municipal level and you have water fire. This is the downtown lake. This is the lake that's there. You see thousands of people on a typical water fire evening. And this is a great time because the locals love it because this is when their city shines. And if you're a visitor, you want to go during water fire because you want to be a part of this. And I was lucky enough to participate in what they call a lighting ceremony a few years ago. And like the villagers out of a Frankenstein movie, we carried these torches from City Hall to the, down to uh, the river. We put the, uh, these torches into an urn on the riverbank, and from that urn, they light water fire. You can hear the Gregorian music in the background. That, oh, you know, it's really cool stuff. Great ritual and tradition. I will always think about you know, Providence in that context. This is the, uh, a, sh a little town in western Massachusetts called Shelburne Falls. And this is called the Iron Bridge. And for 364 days out of the year, um, the Iron Bridge has cars and trucks that go back and forth on it. But for one night out of the year in August, for the last dozen years or so, they close down the bridge and they have dinner on it. <laughs> now, uh, they bring out the linen tablecloths, the linen napkins. They have um, the local students are uh, the waiters and waitresses. And they get the local restaurants to cater the event. And it's this giant fundraiser for the Chamber of Commerce. And it's a fantastic night out. Now, you may travel across this bridge every day, going to and from work, to and from school. But I guarantee you that having dinner on that bridge will not only make you change the way you think about the bridge and the way you experience it, but the way you think and experience your city. You feel it in a different way. And it sort of begs the question, what bits of infrastructure are here that you could take advantage of to do something interesting and different with and make people sort of flip their perception of that? What could you have brunch on here? And that's an interesting question because it makes us think about you know, infrastructure in one particular context. It makes us think about it in a whole other uh, venue, if you will. Good stuff. This is Brattleboro, Vermont, small rural community in Vermont. And um, they're looking around, like a lot of you know, small communities, they think, well, what the heck can we do? How, could, how do we compete with Chicago or you know, Boston and stuff like that? They looked around and said, what do we got? Somebody said, well, we got a lot of cows. <laughs> okay. So they took the idea you know, of the, the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Well, this is the strolling of the heifers <laughs> in Brattleboro. So like these slow-moving you know, parade floats on hooves, they bring the cows in, and they, they parade them through downtown. And it's this wonderful sort of community engagement kind of thing. And if you don't have a, a cow, you figure out the next best thing, a ringer, and it's really, really fun. Now, of course, people are having a great time with this, but at the same time, they're actually also underscoring the importance of their agricultural economy, their rural roots, sustainable farming, all that really good stuff is sort of wrapped up in this really fun, kind of sweet moment. Good, good stuff. How about the idea of a bike-friendly city as a lovable city? Think about how much of our city-making seems to be in service to the car. Lots of it. Um, in fact, it almost seems to be all about the car. You know, all these things about parking and traffic and stuff like that. It seems like you can't do anything because of the car. Well, citizens pick up on that, and they ask themselves, where are we in this conversation? All right? So if you can become a little bit more of a bike-friendly city, you're essentially sending the message out to the citizens hey, we're at least thinking about you. It's not just about the car. And citizens do pick up on this. You, know, you don't have to become the most bike-friendly city in North America or even the most bike-friendly city in, in Florida. That'd be kind of hard to do because most Florida cities don't do particularly well on those lists. But even notionally, just a little bit more bike-friendly, people do pick up on that and they do, uh, they do feel that. 
A walkable city is a lovable city. For similar reasons to being a bike-friendly city, uh, but walking allows for two really important things. It allows for improvisation and discovery. Think about this, you're driving 45 miles an hour down the street and you see something new. A new sign, new restaurant, new shop, whatever. Oh, do you stop? Do you check it out? No, because you'd have to go back around, find a place to park. You log in the back of your head, check it out. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, but if you're walking, you have that moment. It's like, oh, let's check this out. That's new. You know, or I've never been down this street before. Hey, let's, let's go check this out. Or how about this? Sometimes you literally follow your nose. You smell something. Say, hey, that smells good. And all of a sudden you walk into a shop and you find the best oatmeal raisin cookie you've ever had in your life. That doesn't happen. Well, it's not, it never happens. But that's far less likely to happen when we're in our car and we're sort of sealed off from our environment. That can happen when we get out of our car and we're able to interact with other people in our, in our space. Walking uh, makes for that great moment of discovery. And how cool would it be to discover something new about a city that maybe you've lived in for you know, all your life? That's a good moment. And that's going to happen far more likely when we get out of our cars and we're able to walk. A dog-friendly city is a lovable city. With apologies to those of you who own cats and birds and fish and ferrets and things like that, um, we just don't walk our cats. And if we do, people look at us kind of like that bicycling guy, like, really? You're kind of weird, you know, kind of thing, right? We walk our dogs. And when we walk our dogs, interesting things happen. We're actually out there using space. We're using the environment. Uh, we're using the parks. We're using sidewalks, creating this sense of activity. Something's going on here, and that's a good thing. Think about this. Two people maybe pass each other on the sidewalk. No dog, just two people. And on a good day, you might get a grunt of hey, hey kind of thing, right? But think about this. If there's a dog in the mix, and it's a cute dog, and it's a friendly dog, it's like all of a sudden the dog is running up to you, and it's wagging its tail. It's a really cute dog. Oh, what kind of dog is it? Oh, oh, she's a puggle. A puggle. What's her name? Buffy. Buffy the puggle. And all of a sudden now, you're interacting with this person and this dog in a different way than hey and hey, right? And why? Because that dog has essentially negotiated that encounter. That dog has broken the ice for you, right? And I'm not saying you're necessarily going to become best friends with this person, but think about it. If you're in that neighborhood and that dog and that owner are in that neighborhood, there's a pretty good chance you're going to see him again, right? And who knows where that goes? And that little bit of connection, that little bit of, of smile, feeling a little bit better, that's a little bit more social capital than existed before. And that's a good thing. By the way, in an era where we cannot afford more police and more surveillance equipment, the dog and the dog owner actually create a sense of safety as well. And it's not because Buffy the Puggle is an attack dog. No, she's very timid. She does bark at buses, though. That's kind of funny. And so, she doesn't like cyclists very much either, so that's kind of interesting. But the fact is, is I am out there walking her at all t uh, hours of the day and night, and I am creating what uh, Jane Jacobs, the great urbanist, called the eyes of strangers on, on the street. Because there's nothing worse than walking down a completely empty street. We feel very exposed by that. But if there's somebody else out there, a dog walker, hey, it's all good. We're not out there alone. So maybe there's some neighborhoods that we're trying to get you know, turned and become better neighborhoods. Maybe what we do, well, let's incentivize some dog ownership. Maybe put in a little dog park. Or maybe it's as simple as creating one of those, you know, those stands with a mitt and a place to throw the poop. Could be that simple. It's amazing how dogs in cities end up humanizing cities. Now, the ultimate in making for lovable cities, though, are the people in those cities who absolutely passionately love those places. Um, and in my book, I call them co-creators because they're sort of co-creating the city, along with all the official folks that one would expect, mayors, city councils, administrators, those kind of folks. What about those unofficial folks, the ones that we know really make our city and make some really great stuff happen in our community? This is Bob Devin Jones. He's my friend. He's uh, the creative director of a small black box theater in downtown St. Petersburg where we live. And those of us who live in St. Pete know that Bob is one of those people who makes St. Pete a great place to live, work, and play. But he doesn't show up on any sort of traditional city org chart. He's not part of the most you know, influential business people, none of that sort of traditional uh, rankings, none of that. But those of us in the know know that he is an anchor persona in our community. You know, we talk about anchor institutions, anchor businesses, certainly. What about those anchor people? You know, maybe some of you are those people. You certainly know some of those people who really, you know, wow, if we lost that person, look at all the stuff we would lose because of, of them. They, you know, not only what they do, people they connect, the influence they have, good stuff. These people really matter. We need to value them as a community resource uh, the way we do anchor institutions and anchor businesses. Every community, seems like in North America, really around the world, all of them are talking about wanting to become more entrepreneurial, attracting and retaining more entrepreneurs. And I get that. That's great. 
But I get this sense that when people are talking about entrepreneurs, they're usually talking about these sort of high-tech entrepreneurs. You know, the ones, the young ones who are creating all these things on our phones and you know apps and stuff that maybe most of us don't really you know get. But we know it's valuable because you know you see all these tech IPOs and there's you know Facebook and, and Apple and Google and all this kind of stuff. And we go, okay, high-tech, I get it. Yeah, we'd like to see more of that, and that's fine. But what about not just those high-tech entrepreneurs, but what about the high-touch entrepreneurs? And by high-touch, I mean the people who maybe do stuff that allows, that creates a better sense of community. Um, this is Connie Britton Bauer. She makes ice cream. She makes really wonderful artisanal ice cream, and she's opened up several small shops all around the Columbus, Ohio area, and it's great, great stuff. On a typical Friday or Saturday night uh, in the short north, just uh, north of downtown Columbus, there's a line out the door to her shop for people to go in to get ice cream. They sit inside, or better yet, they take it, they walk around the neighborhood having this wonderful ice cream. High touch. Or how about Phil Cooley here uh, from Detroit? Uh, Phil moved back to Detroit, and he and a couple friends bought an old building that at the time didn't even have a roof on it. But because Phil knew how to swing a hammer, he wasn't afraid of that, and they rehabbed the building, and they opened up one of the hottest restaurants to open in, uh, in Detroit in the last several years called Slow's Barbecue, right near Cork, in Corktown, near the old Tiger Stadium. And if you like barbecue and you want a cool place to go, it is a great, great restaurant. And Phil has become a, sort of a de facto champion uh, of Detroit by opening up a restaurant and a place where people go and congregate and things like that high-touch entrepreneurs. They don't get enough credit, but think about those people and those types of businesses that really make a difference in our community. I'm all for the high-tech, yes. Well, let's value those high-touch ones as well. This is Candy Chang. Uh, she's an artist from New Orleans. And after Hurricane Katrina, she did a fairly simple little project. It's this stencil that says, it's good to be here. And she uses spray chalk, not spray paint, so it washes off when it rains. Spray chalk, and she starts uh, putting this message, it's good to be here, all over the city. Think about that message in the context of New Orleans, a city that most people thought they had lost. It's like, wow, it is good to be here. And that is really quite powerful, especially when you start seeing it over and over and over again. Incredibly reinforcing. Communities pay lots of money to marketing firms for internal branding campaigns and self-confidence campaigns and things like that, and that's great. We should do that. But sometimes it can be as simple as an artist, somebody who loves their community with a stencil and a can of spray chalk, making this kind of message and this kind of profound sort of uh, connection with the community. I love this project. One of the other things she did was really quite fun as well, because there's a lot of abandoned buildings and empty storefronts still in New Orleans. She came up with the idea of these little stickers, you know, like the name tags that we typically wear. Instead, she goes, I wish this was, and basically invited people to, you know, hey, tell us what you think this, this should be. And people did. I wish this was a home owned by someone who cared. A community garden. Not so scary looking. Yeah, there's a lot of scary looking stuff in, still in New Orleans. Brad Pitt's house. <laughs> Full of nymphomaniacs with PhDs. <laughs> Wishful thinking. How about a grocery? So she creates these stickers and she puts them out all over the community, different retail spots, restaurants and things like that, and basically invites people, take the sticker, write something. Tell us what you think that, that, that thing should be. And people did. You know, we pay, again, a lot of money for things like charrettes and focus groups and stuff like that, and that's cool. But what happens if we maybe just did something like this and essentially looked in and see what people are saying? Because right there, that's the raw data. You could go and you could read that, and there'll be some stuff that's completely profane, some stuff that's wildly funny, silly, uh, some stuff that just couldn't be done, ridiculous, but there's going to be some really good stuff in there as well. And you can tell where the community is thinking about something like this. Raw data. And by the way, you know, have you ever walked past that, you know, sort of an abandoned building or an empty storefront that's kind of gone, you know, fallen to seed and you go, man, doesn't somebody else care about this? Is it just me? Well, when you start seeing this stuff over and over again throughout your community, people are essentially voting, telling you that they want to see something happen. It says something. It says somebody else gives a damn. That is incredibly important. We can't feel like we're in this alone. And when we see something like this, we go, there's other people out there and I have some hope. Good, good stuff. This is Mitch Willis. He is a, an artist from Wichita, Kansas, and he lives on an area called Commerce Street. He works with uh, customized motorcycles, customized autos, and things like that. And he said that uh, the neighborhood was getting tagged a lot by the street artists and the taggers and things like that. So uh, they'd complain to the city. The city would come in, they'd whitewash the walls, sandblast the walls, all that kind of stuff. And of course, a blank wall is basically an invitation to come back and paint it again. So he said that wasn't really working. So he said, the heck with this. And he came up with his own solution. He went on, he bought this bus. He said he paid $1,200 for this old bus, and he rolled it in front of his, uh, his studio. 
and he brought in this boxcar uh, behind his studio. And on the boxcar, he put this sign. It says, do not paint over any piece unless your piece is much better. If you do go over a piece, go completely over it. Show respect and be thoughtful with the art. And this, this boxcar is provided by the Go Away Garage and the Willis family for competent writers and artists to utilize. In exchange, we ask that you do not paint or vandalize any buildings or property in the neighborhood. Thank you. You know what he created here? Graffiti flypaper. All of a sudden now, those street artists and those taggers had a place, had a venue, had some place to put their art, and they did. He said within a matter of a couple weeks, graffiti in the neighborhood went down by like 95%. Because all of a sudden now, again, they had a venue. Because the taggers and the street artists, they want their stuff to be seen. That's why they put it in certain places. But now, because they know that other people are looking at Mitch's, you know, his uh, boxcar and his bus, that's the place to go. And if you're going to put your art out there, that's the place you want to do it. Graffiti flypaper. Because I'll tell you this, the solution to graffiti is not a blank wall. The solution to graffiti, better graffiti. Seriously. This is Reuben and Hunter. These are my friends uh, from uh, St. Petersburg. And about two years ago, they started this project called Swings Tampa Bay. And it's a really sweet, simple little project. In the middle of the night, they will go out and they will hang a swing off of a tree or some piece of public infrastructure, something like that. So all of a sudden now, you show up in front of your, you know, to your building, um, and there's a tree, or excuse me, there's a swing uh, in the tree out in front of it. Chances are it was Reuben and Hunter, and they put up the swing in the middle of the night, sort of ninja style. And I asked them, so why a swing? And they said, well, a swing is a spontaneous community building exercise. It's like, how so? It's like, well, think about it. If you're there with your significant other and you see a swing, or more likely you're there with your kids and they see a swing, they run to the swing. And all of a sudden now you're pushing them on the swing and, hey, they're making that face again. <laughs> Boom. Because how could you not smile when you're, when you're on a swing? Spontaneous community building exercise. Kind of cool where this particular photo was taken, by the way, is check this out. The overpass above I-275. <laughs> now... They admitted this one did not last very long, um, and that's fine. But they said uh, the response that communities have had to the swings has actually been really quite wonderful. They said officially, folks from the city, the mayors, council, administrators, and things like that, said officially, they've said, we've got to take the swings down. Unofficially, they've kind of said, we like what you're doing, keep it up. And that's kind of cool, because they're not wanting to squelch the enthusiasm these two young guys have for doing something positive for their community. And they may not play by all the rules, and I get that, uh, but they've not you know, said, you know, not thrown them in jail, they've not fined them, they sort of worked, trying to work with them. And maybe they'll channel that energy into something maybe a little more legit at some point. But I think it's pretty cool that they haven't squelched that, uh, that project. This is Andrew Anderson. He is an artist in a small town in Iowa called Muscatine. And he told me that the folks in Muscatine don't think of themselves as being very creative. He said, we're rural, agricultural, salt of the earth, good, hard-working Midwestern folks, but uh, the folks here don't necessarily think of themselves as being very creative. He says, I wanted to change that. But he says, how do I do that? So he starts looking around for some inspiration. And he finds this little kernel of a local legend of a so-called river monster that lives in the Mississippi River. He goes, hmm, river monster. I could work with that. So he spent about $2,000 on some material. And in the summer of 2011, he debuted the Muscatine River Monster. He was in the upper floors of this old hotel that had been converted to condos, and he worked with the owners um, and the developer uh, for the launch of this. And people came down, and they wanted they, pictures, and people loved the monster. And he'd intended it as sort of a one-off. Uh, but it turned out people loved the monster, and they said, hey, could we get the monster in our building? And he said, sure, why not? So now the monster has made the rounds. It's been in storefronts. The dorms at the community college, the public library, and even the 4th of July parade. I love this project. And I love it for because it's whimsical and it's fun, but I love it because I look at this guy right here, the one who's taking that picture. He's looking at that. And he's looking at that, and I bet he's going, one of us did that. One of us made that crazy thing. And here's a great example of an artist who's essentially held up a mirror to his community and said, all the stuff that you think you are, yes, you are that, but you are something more. Wow. Talk about a self-confidence campaign. Talk about changing perceptions for people. This is a fantastic example of what a creative person, a person who is in love with their community, unbidden, unpaid, can potentially do to make their community a better, more interesting, more lovable place. Wow. And maybe the best example uh, of this comes from a really interesting set of circumstances. In January of 2011, Newsweek magazine came out with a list that no city in America wanted to be on. It was a list of America's 10 most dying cities. 
dying cities and is based upon population loss between 2000 and 2010. And sadly for Grand Rapids, Michigan, they were on that list. Now, in typical fashion, what do if somebody says something bad about your city, what do you do? It's like, well, uh, we need a new ad campaign. We need a PR blitz. Get the word out. Not a dying city, right? Well, right now, money's pretty tight for cities, and they probably don't have a whole lot of discretionary income just lying around for a new ad campaign. So Grand Rapids was in that, that spot. They said, what the heck are we going to do? In walks this 22-year-old kid. He's 22 years old at the time, and his name is Rob Bliss. He's the guy here in the green T-shirt. He walks in, and he basically says, I have an idea. Let's do a lip dub. A lip what? A lip dub. L-I-P-D-U-B. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, a lip dub is essentially lip syncing to a popular song and you do a video of it. And usually the video is like done as oftentimes as one continuous take. So we could do a lip dub here. We'd start down here, play some music, and you guys start singing. Boom, boom, boom. We go up here, across the back, down the middle, over here. Done. Lip dub. Boring, but a lip dub nonetheless, right? Rob said, no, let's take it, let's make it big. Let's make it epic. Uh, we'll get everybody involved. We'll shoot it downtown. We'll use uh, Facebook and, and uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter. It'll go out. It'll, be, it'll go viral. It'll be big. It'll be fantastic. It'll be great. Now, how do you suppose that conversation went over with the powers that be the first time he was presented that to city council and things like that? You want to do a lip what? Using YooHoo, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, that's that 140 characters thing. Uh, viral, that sounds pretty bad. Um, how old are you, son? And by the way, have you ever done this before? Think about that. Rob does not look like your traditional city solutions provider. He's not wearing a suit and tie, and more importantly, he doesn't have a stack of reports that say if you do this, you get these very predictable outcomes on the other end. No. He's a 22-year-old kid who has an idea, and he thinks he can pull it off. Wow. Now, Maybe because they saw something in Rob, or maybe because uh, they had to. Uh, maybe, I'd like to think it's maybe a combination of both. But Grand Rapids did decide to move forward with this. And they said, we really don't have any money, but we can maybe provide police and fire service. We can help block off downtown. And we can help connect you to some private money and maybe make this happen. And they did. They were able to raise about $40,000. And in May of 2011, they shot the Grand Rapids Lip Dub. And I've got a little excerpt here to show you. And I think it's fantastic because it's this incredible example of a community rallying around somebody saying, somebody else from the outside declaring you something, saying, hey, the heck we are. And look at what we're going to do. Now, the, the actual whole video is nine and a half minutes long. And it takes place over a one-mile course throughout downtown Grand Rapids. And over 5,000 people were involved in making it and shooting it that day. I'm going to show you just a little ex uh, excerpt from here. But check out this community's response to being declared a dying city. And remember, this was done as one continuous take. Check out the Grand Rapids lip dub. That's cool. To light the sacrificial right This guy's a little Satan intense though. But he can walk a straight line. They were singing They said they picked this song because it's about life death and renewal. Let's face it, everybody knows the words. They did five takes. This is the fifth and final take.
Experience Grand Rapids. Now, that video has been viewed over five million times on YouTube. It got picked up by national and international media. Rob was interviewed on Good Morning America, and Grand Rapids got tens of millions of dollars of positive brand exposure because they're willing to listen to a 20-year-old kid who had a weird, wacky, untested idea. Wow. What's the lesson? Well, it's not to go out and do another lip dub. It's been done. It's been done really, really well. But in the spirit of that lip dub, let's recognize that the solutions to our city's problems may come from different people. They may not look the same. They may not dress the same. They may not have the same language. And they may be talking about stuff we don't even fully understand. But before we dismiss them out of hand or because we've, we're just not familiar with it, it's like, well, you don't have those reports. Well, let's remember that uh, if they had said no to him, it's like, no, thanks, you know, Mr. Bliss, but uh, I think we'll, we'll go talk to our marketing company. We'll be fine, you know. Would they? I think not. So in the spirit of that lip dub, the next time maybe somebody, maybe some of you sit you know, on the other side and, and judging and officiating kinds of things and making those kinds of decisions. Maybe the next time somebody comes in front of you and they don't quite have the language or the experience and maybe they don't look quite the way you're used to, maybe you'll remember this experience and say, well, wait a minute. They've got a passion. They've got some enthusiasm. Maybe I could work with them. Maybe you can mentor them, nurture them along because who knows what you know, we could potentially be missing because they don't necessarily look the part. So that, I think, is the great lesson in the lip dub uh, as we move forward. By the way, remember I showed you the Swings Tampa Bay thing, and I bet you went, yeah, that's kind of cute. You know, Swings and whatnot, okay. Well, Rob did not just start out uh, as the guy who came in and, and did the lip dub. No, his first projects with the city of, of uh, Grand Rapids, he organized pillow fights in the park for the city. Pillow fights. Now, uh, can you imagine, you know, if they'd said no to the pillow fights, no, we're not really a pillow fight kind of city, thank you very much, Mr. Bliss. You know, and look at all the stuff they would miss out, because pillow fights led to uh, doing this giant water slide in downtown uh, Grand Rapids, which led him to the Art Prize competition, where they threw 100,000 paper airplanes off the tallest building in downtown uh, Grand Rapids as the band played below, which sets him up perfectly to be sort of, in many ways, a savior for his community with the Grand Rapids lift up. And in, this, in the continuum of silliness, I would put pillow fights in the park right up there next to uh, swings and whatnot. So, so the, the silly project today could lead to some very interesting things down the road if we don't sort of squelch that enthusiasm for those people who want to try something weird and wacky that maybe we don't quite get. Now, you need these people in your community. These folks like Rob Bliss and Bob Devin Jones and Connie Britton Bauer. They are like the best spice that goes into a meal. You don't need a lot of them, but certainly you need enough of them to make for a flavorful meal and certainly to make for an interesting community. And what would happen if we actually started to look at, at how those people manifest? And I did some research. Folks here know Wikipedia, right? Uh, most people here probably used Wikipedia. Any folks here ever made a Wikipedia entry? Yeah. A few, okay. More than five? Okay, there, you're the one. Now, all of us have probably used Wikipedia, yet a very small number of people have ever actually made a contribution back to Wikipedia, because all that is user-generated content. So it's called participation inequality. Um, and studies have shown that less than 1% of the total users of Wikipedia ever make a contribution and make an entry back into that. Participation inequality. Now, I believe physical communities follow that same pattern, in the sense that a very small number of us actually create all the content that goes into our cities. We all consume our city, you know, and in return, we pay, our, uh, we pay our taxes, we obey the law, we spend our money. That's the deal. All of us consume the city. But a few of us, probably most of the folks in here, lots of you folks, are creating things for the city. You're creating that content. You, you are that version of Bob Devin Jones or something like that. What would happen if we focused on those people? What would happen if we tried to get more of those folks, especially at that 1% number? And I did some math here. I did, let's, you know, Tampa, Tallahassee, and say Delray Beach. Let's focus here on Tallahassee. 181,000 people, which means there's about 1,800 folks who are making all the content, making the city happen, both official and unofficial. What if we were to try to increase that number by just 10%, one-tenth of overall 1%, 181 more Rob Blisses, Bob Devin Joneses, Connie Britton Bowers. These are entrepreneurs. These are people who make things happen. They start things. They connect people. Their enthusiasm about their place is absolutely infectious. What if we were to add 181 of those folks? What if we were even to add a couple dozen more of those people? What would the effect be on your community? Exponential. These people cannot help but what they do. And by having more of them, you're creating more content. You're creating more energy, more activity, more love in your community. What would happen if a small number of more of these people were to get engaged with our place? Fantastic things.
Here's the thing. You don't need to recruit 181 of these people from Atlanta or Charlotte or Miami or wherever. No. Most, if not all of those people, are already here. They just don't know how to get in the game. They don't think they have the right resources or the right education, and they don't think they have the permission to be a city builder, to be a community change agent. They think that's something other people do. They may have the ideas, they may want to do it, but they don't think that they're that person. Maybe you guys have thought that yourself. Maybe I think, well, I'm, who am I? I don't have permission to do that. Uh, well, that's the thing. Let's not wait for permission. Look at how many people didn't wait for permission. Look at the great stuff that they're doing. It's incredibly important that we get these people into the game. Into the game. Because think about this. Right now, there's a pretty big gap between the city that we desire and the city we know we can afford. The question becomes, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to wait for the city and the county to get rich again? Are we going to wait for government to bail us out on something like that? No, because I think if we do, we're going to be waiting a long time. But the solution is for more of us to get in the game, to be the people who fill that gap and step in and do something above and beyond ordinary citizenship and really put our money where our mouth is. When we say we love a place, well, what are you willing to do for it? Because when you love something, you go above and beyond. You forgive its shortcomings, and you fight for it. Tallahassee needs more people who are willing to fight for it. it needs more people who are willing to show up and say, I give a damn, what can I do? That is the secret to lovable cities, is more people falling in love with their place and seeing themselves as a change agent, seeing themselves as the maker and the shaper and the doer in the community. And that is going to be the salvation, I think, of our cities. It's going to have to be both from the top down, but it absolutely needs this groundswell, this bottom-up activity of people falling in love with their place and going above and beyond and doing something and making a difference in their city. Thank you very much. And um, questions, or do we just want to go get a drink? Um, it's up to you guys. Liz, thank you. Vanessa here again. Let's have a drink. We like that idea. We're all about sharing a drink and sharing a meal with neighbors in our hometown. It's actually a critical part of our model. And by the way, there were some very excellent questions, but many of them were hyper local to our community. So we're going to leave it right here for you to go off and have these important conversations in your own community. Share this episode with your neighbors as a way to get people inspired to dive in next level to your hometown and to bring more people into the fold. I got about a million ideas to chat with my team about, and I was particularly energized by that part about participation inequality. We talk about that here all the time, but I didn't even know there was a term for it. I'm guessing you've got the same dynamic in your community where you see the same faces over and over again, which by the way, we love and is super important. And those people are awesome and critical, but we want to cast a bigger net and affect more people in our hometown. When we've talked about this before internally, it can feel a little demoralizing, but after hearing Peter, I am super motivated. You guys I've had a perspective shift from people don't really want to get involved to people just need to know about this and people want to be invited to the table. They want to know their input is valuable and they want to feel like they're part of something. We are such groupish creatures for very important reasons and we enjoy contributing to our groups. So if we center our groups around our hometown where we can actually affect change, then we're likely going to be happier and more connected and our communities will thrive. So I'm going to let you go so we can both go dive into our local communities. But first, please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. Village Squarecast is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. We appreciate you listening to For the Love of Cities with Peter Kagiyama. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.